Welcome to another late June episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. Well, technically, this isn't another late June episode unless you did one last year. Okay, this is the only late June episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I don't recall if we did one last year. <laughs> but yeah, with, with your hosts, Joe Alcock. Coffee Brown. Coffee Brown, and we are joined today by... Paul the, Watson. The, the eminent, eminent, eminent Paul, Paul Watson. Watson. Paul Watson. Esteemed. Paul Watson from uh, the biology department at the University of New Mexico. And if you could see his hair, you'd be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he cut, cuts an imposing figure, yes, um, with a good head of hair, indeed. Um, so, you know, Paul and I have some connections, besides the fact that I was also adjunct professor, I still am, I guess, adjunct professor of biology at the University of New Mexico. Uh, but Paul and I actually share the same alma mater in Cornell in the division of neurobiology and behavior. And this we is actually, like a cabal? Or? This is like a cabal, but we, uh, I didn't know this when I was there. Um, but, but yeah, so I went, I went to Cornell for two years between undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara and then medical school at UCLA. I was at Cornell. I, I in the neurobiology and behavior program. And uh, I had the same graduate school advisors as Paul Watson, Paul Sherman, and Steve Emlin. Right. Yeah. So well, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your background and the fact that we have this interesting thing in common? Uh, well, also, I know your father. Um, yeah. I'm, I first met your father and you at Flathead Lake Biological Station. I was wondering about that when you uh, you mentioned in your email about Flathead Lake. East Shore of Flathead Lake, uh, University, right. of, University of Montana Biological, Biological. Station. Yeah. Your father uh, taught uh, the field studies and animal behavior course there one year. Right. And um, So this is, this is in the 80s, and probably the early 80s. Yeah. And then your dad came to Cornell for a sabbatic semester or something. And so he and I got to know one another pretty well. Uh, he was really jazzed at the station. He was really jazzed at the station with uh, my work on the Sierra Dome spider, and that turned into a class project for his animal behavior course yeah. that he was teaching. And we, listen, we haven't talked too much about my dad on this podcast, uh, just for whatever reason. <laughs> but my dad is, um, you know, an evolutionary biologist, animal behaviorist. He's written a lot of books. A lot of people in the biological world and animal behavior know him, and. He's and studied using his book titled Animal Behavior. Um, Good name for yeah. <laughs> So so yeah, so back in the day, this is so the Flathead Lake experience for me was back in the day. Yeah. Um a, we were at the I, my main memory of that was that I carved a bunch of uh, really cool little dugout canoes. Um, I still have one of them. <laughs> that's that's my, my claim to fame from uh, this Montana experience, except that it was it's a great place. And I, I did have this kind of charmed childhood in that my dad spent most summers going to cool places like Montana or Minnesota, Australia, Virginia. We got out of the heat of Arizona where, where he was at Arizona State University. Yeah. If you're trying to make me jealous, you had me at cool places. Cool places. Yeah. So yeah. 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 He and I had a really good time together during the few years that we had close contact. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yes, my Cornell years were, were wonderful. Um, Emlyn and Sherman were my co-chairs, and um, in some ways very complementary in the way they approach um, uh, field research and um, what they bring to the table when you're trying to troubleshoot 
um, your methods and develop alternative hypotheses. And, yeah, and they also, I appreciate it very much, I hope you had the same, they were very conscious of building a, a graduate student group, a lab, together where the people really got along. And there was this wonderful, critical camaraderie. Paul Sherman, interestingly, wonderful. started a class in evolutionary medicine that mm -hmm. was an inspiration for, for my class. This is my grad student advisor. So unlike <coughs> Dr. Watson here, I didn't finish my PhD. Right. After a couple of years, I left and went to medical school at UCLA. And dirty little secret revealed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I ended up you know, finishing a master's degree, but um, that was not part of the original plan. Uh, but Paul continued, got his PhD, um, and, and you too have taken this experience and then translated some of the evolutionary biology, behavioral ecology, to thinking about humans. Yes. I think a lot of, um, I'm, not, I'm not putting myself in this category, but I think a lot of the best evolutionary psychologists have uh, started out as field biologists studying animal behavior, the evolution of behavior. Or are you saying you have to study uh, spiders to understand something about people? It's a grounding influence because you're out there and you can really see um, natural selection and all its complexity in action. And so um, if you buy the proposition that uh, we are products of the same forces and processes that uh, those spiders and all kinds of other critters are, then um, I think that uh, yeah, my spite the the Sierra Dome spider for me is kind of like a wormhole back to basic Darwinian realities, and it's so easy to start imagining stuff when you think about the human mind and oh, it's all cultural influences and things like that. Yeah, I believe that uh, studying animal behavior has helped me and many others think more soberly about humans. So I hadn't realized that was a question until this minute. I, in fact, I hadn't really sharply differentiated between animal behavior and evolutionary psychology. I thought of them as joined at the hip right along. This is not a widely held view? Well, there's plenty of animal behaviorists that would never want to work on humans. And it was just, I think a lot, a lot of it was, it was just kind of taboo. It was the same kind of problem that Darwin worried about when he was hesitating on publishing his big book, you know. So he preferred to work on barnacles. Yeah. Applying the, <clears throat> the rather stark calculus of modern Darwinism to humans really turns a lot of people off. So that's true. I mean, I always thought, though, that at least with medicine, that the practice of medicine is so applied and practical, we hope, and has utility that if we could show that evolutionary biology is important in medicine, then it would be not controversial at all. I don't know if that's true. Well, I don't. <laughs> I, think, spend, I think we have a ways to go. I don't spend near as much time and effort on evolutionary medicine as you do, Joe, but mm -hmm. I cannot, literally cannot even imagine trying to approach understanding physiology without understanding yeah, the rudiments of evolution. Right. Uh, I mean, I just don't see those as separable topics. Yeah, but Paul brings up a good point, which is that certainly when, when a lot of folks are comfortable thinking about evolutionary ideas when it comes to uh, the dome spiders, Sierra dome? Sierra dome spiders. Sierra dome spiders, or with barnacles, or with Galapagos finches, 
uh, or with bacteria, with E. coli, and maybe a little bit less comfortable thinking about how it might apply to us and certainly how it may shape our brains and our behavior. There is certainly a taboo. Some areas of social science don't want absolutely nothing to do with evolutionary biology. Yeah, and I think the social sciences have suffered greatly uh, for that. There's no unifying principle to guide your thinking. Yeah, the social sciences, I mean, the whole idea that we've evolved to be purely cultural creatures and who we become as we develop is primarily, or most social sciences wouldn't say only, but primarily a product of our culture and our upbringing. Nothing to do with our genes, nothing to do with adaptation or... And, you know, genetically encoded learning instincts and uh, things like that. Yeah, underappreciation of that has uh, really uh, hindered development of the social sciences. This is the topic of Steven Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, really. Yes. Um, By way of analogy, in physics, everything has a wave-particle duality. But at a Newtonian scale, everything looks like it's made up of solid particles. The very same stuff becomes more and more wave-like as you go down into the quantum scale. And in the same way, if you look at the top level of human behavior, the conversation we're having right now and so forth, is very culturally constructed and culturally shaped and so forth. But what shaped that and what shaped our abilities and so on, as you get more sort of uh, look at it at a finer and finer scale, it becomes more and more an evolutionary psychology question. There's no sharp dividing line between the two, and they're not separable from each other. But at different scales, they do appear very different. Culture is itself a product of evolutionary psychology, if you think about it. It's an integral of it. Paul has thought about it. Yeah. Well, quite right. <laughs> right. And and by the way, I should mention I'm heavily outgunned in this conversation. But I don't think anyway. So. I thought that analogy might help us to think about the question. That's great coffee. You know, the, one of the reasons why uh, we invited Paul to join us today was we were going to talk about depression. This was a topic that you thought would be useful to talk think mm-hmm. about, right, Coffee? Why is there so much depression? It seems like it's a really bad evolutionary move. I heard somebody use the phrase a Dokenzian move. That's an interesting phrase. I'm not sure if there's any like scientific... I don't know if it's a real word or not, but I just like the phrase. Like, but, like Dawkins? Yeah. yeah. So the idea of a Dokenzian <laughs> move is that it's a, um, a cultural evolutionary strategy that leads to the propagation of your uh, genetic material. Depression doesn't seem to do that. We avoid people who are depressed often, not always. They certainly are not, don't seem as competitive in the social sphere when we're competing for mates and so forth. It looks like a low fitness marker, and yet there's tons of it around. And All of us will feel it at some times, and some people will feel it most of the time. So why is evolution not sorted more aggressively against depression? The point you're bringing up, I think, is a really important and salient one. And so for someone like me and Paul and you with some education in evolutionary biology, and you think to yourself, this is paradoxical. It doesn't make any sense that such a phenomenon should exist, at least the way that we typically think of these things, pathological, harmful, and yet extremely common. So there is this paradox of major depression. And maybe we should actually describe momentarily what major depression is. I have a, I have a little list here of some of the criteria. So it's the major depression is characterized by anhedonia. So the, you have, lose the capacity to feel joy. 
you have a change in appetite, usually that involves eating less. So people uh, lose, lose their appetite. Um, changes in sleep. So far, it sounds like meth addiction, by the way. Keep going. Yeah, I, had, I took care of some of them today. I just, I just came off a long shift in the ER. Uh, insomnia. Psychomotor agitation, so people get restless and can't sit still. Or they have psychomotor retardation and just want to lay, lay in bed all day. Fatigue. Yeah, loss of energy, fatigue. Diminished concentration and energy. Critically, there's these recurring thoughts of death. And actually, there's a little break line here down to mm-hmm. loss of energy. These yeah. are the so-called vegetative symptoms. Yeah. And they also include um, either increased or decreased libido. That too. Yeah. Which is, that's, that's, these are interesting, interesting things. So yeah, you lose These your are sex, amygdala functions sex drive. and their core survival functions, which is the reason I'm emphasizing this break point in your list. Keep yeah. going. Well, the, you know, the interesting thing is that depression itself is has a, a heritable component so the predisposition to being depressed melancholic or having major depression uh, seems to be heritable so with um, in, a, in a major twin study involving over 42,000 twin pairs the her- heritability for depression was high 27% for men and 42% for women and we should mention that women seem to have a higher rate of major depression than do men, yet men with major depression have a higher rate of actually committing, attempting and completing suicide. So the, the fatality rate for, for men might actually be higher. So yeah, there's this large fitness cost. If you kill yourself because you're depressed, you're not going to reproduce. You're not going to be there to care for your children. So I believe we're going to talk about a number of theories today. We're going to talk about a bunch. Try to parse depression as perhaps having more of a positive fitness effect than we intuit. Well, if that's the case, then it would it would resolve this paradox, this fitness cost. And again, this is another big study. Studies entitled "Excess Mortality and Depression: A Meta-Analysis in the Journal of Affective Disorders," published 2002, and they estimate that if you have major depression, your relative risk of uh, dying dying early, early mortality. It's about 1.8. It's almost double. And that early mortality is important. A late mortality wouldn't have a huge reproductive fitness impact. Right. I'd have to go back and they, they would have a time frame that they're looking at. But in whatever time frame that they predict, uh, you had almost a double rate, rate of death. So this is paradoxical. So we have a common, almost 10% of U.S. adults, at least when I, when I did my last literature search on this, have, have either experienced or are experiencing major depression. Oh, I see. that's current depression. <laughs> I think it's actually, I think it's a third, up to a third of people uh, will have a lifetime um, incidence of depression. It has this heritability up to 30, 40%. It doubles your risk of death. And 60% of suicide attempters have a concurrent mood disorder. I'm surprised, frankly, it's that low. Who commits suicide when they're in a good mood? Ah, oh, it's a great day today, and I won the lottery. I think I'll kill myself. Well, this will be a diagnosis. Then tomorrow disorder. can't be worse. Yeah, good point. <laughs> this, I think, is clear to almost anybody that this, this requires some kind of evolutionary explanation. right? Why wouldn't natural selection have just eliminated depression? Spoiler alert, I'm coming up with an alternative hypothesis that does not require an evolutionary explanation. Oh, come on, man. You're not going to spoil the party. So, yeah, so, so one idea, though, if we just kind of plunge into it. So one idea is to say, well, gosh, maybe, maybe it's not all a downside. Maybe there's some hidden upside to depression. So what are some of the options? What, I, I think you were starting to mention one a little earlier. Well, beginning in the late 1990s, I... And um, I should mention three colleagues uh, who were uh, also thinking hard, were thinking hard together about 
the potential adaptive significance of depression as a, essentially a social adaptation. Ed Hagen, a very important thinker in this area at University of Washington, State University of Washington at Vancouver. Paul Andrews, who I co-authored my first paper with on depression, who's now at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. And uh, James Andy Thompson, a psychiatrist who helps take care of students at the Student Health Center at the University of Virginia. The four of us have collaborated quite a bit. We probably wouldn't all talk in exactly the same way about our idea about the adaptive significance of depression, but we are largely on the same page. When I speak today, I'm going to talk about my favorite way of talking about our joint hypothesis. They probably wouldn't agree with everything that I say, but I think it's also safe to say that there wouldn't be any like violent disagreement <laughs> between mm-hmm. the four of us. That's good. That's good. Although, you know what? A little bit of maybe not violent disagreement. That makes for a good podcast. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, yeah. During those years uh, from like 97 to 2004, boy, yeah, the emails were flying and uh, the discussion was pretty stimulating. And, you know, first, uh, first it's, it's a matter of just, you know, developing a common language uh, so that we're not just talking past each other. But we eventually saw that we're really talking pretty much about exactly the same thing uh, as far as uh, depression being a... Uh, a very special purpose and high risk adaptation. Yeah, anything that's associated with a 1.8 increased risk of death is pretty high risk. Yeah, but there are lots of high risk behaviors out there, and um, it's not just because people are on meth and crazy. Humans and all kinds of animals have been designed to go for it, you know? Yeah. Um, In adolescence, risk taking behavior is an almost mandatory reproductive strategy for males. And so we can see that things that increase your risk of death can simultaneously increase your chance of reproduction, Mm -hmm. at least in that model. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, so another writer who's written about about evolutionary ideas about depression, Leif Kinnear, or Leif Kinnear, that's K-E-N-N-A-I-R, he wrote a nice review of of some of these topics, which is good. But I I bring him up because he, he studies child behavior, and apparently with uh, playground design, mm-hmm. a lot of times playground designers try to make playgrounds safer and safer for children to make it harder and harder for them to hurt themselves. What happens is that kids just take more and more risks so that the injury rate is, remains about the same. In safety which tells, tells this us, is called risk titration. Yeah, which tells us something about the adaptiveness of risk, risk-taking behavior. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, that was an aside. Yeah, social competition yeah. drives a lot of risk-taking behavior. So not all risky behaviors are necessarily Stat- bad. Status competition. Absolutely, bad if you absolutely lose not. Yeah. yeah. If you die in the age of If you blood. lose the bet before reproducing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's important, and I'm sure you guys understand, it's important mm-hmm. for the audience to understand that as natural selection builds a mind, a human mind or an animal mind, it is favoring, it is favoring the average success of a, a cognitive process and correlated behavioral process, the average success of the trait in the population. So there can be many, many failures when a a given adaptation that, you know, high risk Mm -hmm. by definition is uh, executed, the brain decides to execute that adaptation. 
there can be many, many dismal failures as a result of executing that adaptation. But if enough individuals in the population hit the jackpot, it might be rare, but enough of them hit the jackpot, then the average reward is, uh, outweighs the, the cost that lots of individuals may, may suffer. And natural selection will keep that behavior. It's always tuning the behavior to make it better, you know, uh, in terms of lifetime fitness. But natural selection will favor the behavior, even though there are so many failures, as long as there's enough people hitting the jackpot to make up for it. In the human cultures we're aware of, High-profile, high-risk takers who do not die wind up with a lot of partners. Yeah. And your, your thought, Paul, made me think about you know, sort of the applicability of some of these ideas to medicine and to individual patients. So it's not the utility of me talking to an individual patient and saying, you know, the fact that you're depressed and you committed, you're trying to harm yourself today, this, this really is an adaptive thing. And uh, I, need to, I want to talk to you about how, how this may have evolved. That, that may not they may not be actually that a useful. Like a winning strategy. That may not be a useful way to go because that that person may in fact be one of the people who does not succeed mm-hmm. at the strategy. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't argue that that would uh, often be a successful way to go, but I think right. it would still be very important for um, people treating depression to have this adaptationist hypothesis in mind because it, it does have huge treatment implications, and you don't have to. You don't need to talk about evolutionary theory with the patient right. in order to be guided by the, the treatment implications that our hypothesis about the adaptive function of depression has. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that might be a good place then for us to kind of plunge in. Let's see if uh, you can explain some of the hypotheses. Okay. I guess they've had different names over Well, the they years. have different names. What, what are uh, the names? Well, the social navigation hypothesis. Ed Hagen likes to call it the bargaining hypothesis. Of course, social navigation is all about bargaining. Paul Andrews has focused on the sort of obsessive rumination that occurs in many depressions, um, often before it even becomes clinical. In minor depression, you kind of lose the optimistic bias, and you're obsessed with thinking about social relationships and your own failings and he has uh, concentrated his career, big part of it, on analyzing that part of depression. But that's only a part of depression, as the symptoms that Joe just went over illustrated. I like to call the hypothesis the niche change hypothesis of depression, because I think that title really nails the reproductive problem, which I think would be... Spoken a- like a true biologist. The reproductive problem that uh, I think would be, it's very logical, this would be a high-stakes, commonly recurring problem that humans face in social life, and it doesn't surprise me a damn bit that natural selection would have come up with a kind of adaptation of last resort to solve this problem, which is the problem of socioeconomic niche change. Obviously, humans are are hyper-social creatures. Our fitness depends upon a complex matrix of social exchange contracts with a variety of interacting partners. And this has been true since pre-Homo sapien days, hunter-gatherers, even in small groups. I mentioned social niche. The structure and terms of any given individual's contractual relational matrix uh, define that individual's social niche. 
the social matrix, that set of contracts that keep you alive, that keep me alive, that keep us all alive, those contracts that define your social niche. Is it like your social network? Yes, but it's, it's, it, it includes a, a keen recognition that everybody in that social network has specific expectations about what that relationship is going to entail. How are you increasing my fitness, and how am I paying you back to increase your fitness? That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And, um, of course, that's not the way we experience it. We experience love. We experience friendship. We say, oh, my business partner is so competent. That's what we feel on the emotional level. But the reason we're having those emotions is to help us maintain and, and, and sometimes negative emotions about another person. Those are helping us keep watch over and maintain the quality of our social exchange relationships, whether contractual terms are being met, whether they're out of date, and whether they need to be changed. So I can see how that would influence mood, whether you're in a good mood, bad mood, angry, sad, jealous. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I'm not, but I'm not sure how it would have explained well, major depression. Mood yes. is something well, we experience, mm-hmm. but affect is how we manipulate each other is one way that we can talk about it. Depression is a mood, but we understand it in other people as an affect. So how does that play into these social contracts? Yes. Well, the, the basic idea here is that depression is a, an involuntarily activated, you know, based on non-conscious mental mechanisms, analyzing your social situation and your social niche, the quality of your social niche. Depression is a way to influence people in your social matrix, specifically to influence them to allow you to make a major change in your way of life, your socioeconomic strategy, which requires the rewriting of many social exchange contracts at once. Was it a way of breaking contracts? In order to change your social niche, in order to go from the latrine digger to the uh, arrowhead maker, probably an elite group, yeah, you got to rewrite the terms of the contracts you have with just about everybody in your social matrix, mm-hmm. family, friends, uh, business partners. So, so if I express enough depressed affect at being a latrine digger, you, my tribe, have a choice of either reassigning me or ejecting me. I'm, yes. I'm imagining a kid who's been assigned to wash the dishes and keeps breaking them. There you <laughs> go. Which would be a different way. It doesn't require depression. Yeah. So, so you have <laughs> to, to decide to which is more cost-effective for you, to be short a member or to reassign me to a job that won't leave me so... Uh, so ineffective. Yeah. Hmm. Another thing we, we need to realize is that, okay, we, we all depend upon this contractual matrix for our fitness, our biological fitness. And generally, individuals desire stability in their contractual matrix. Stability. They don't want it always changing. Because this allows efficient implementation of strategies to maximize your own lifetime inclusive fitness, your own lifetime fitness that arises through both direct and indirect reproduction. Okay, we want our social partners to keep supplying us with the goods and services that we originally contracted them for, you know? We want stability um, because it helps us implement our own strategies for um, increased fitness. Humans are also creative lifelong learners. Therefore, throughout hominid evolutionary history, certainly at least when Homo sapiens came around, 
throughout um, this evolutionary history, it should have been common for developing individuals to find themselves in circumstances in which a major change in their social niche would offer massive fitness benefits. You gain skills and, you know, you're growing in all kinds of ways, obviously, as, as a human being. Humans often are going to be, be in a situation where they need to change their social niche, but everybody basically wants stability in their social matrix. So you're almost guaranteed to face some resistance, even from people who love you, if you want to make a major change in the way you're living your life. Changing social niche is the most complex social problem individuals ever face. And uh, successfully doing so, like I was saying earlier, uh, requires fundamental revision of many ex social exchange contracts, basically simultaneously. Sometimes a person's contractual matrix may crystallize to an extent that it could, it could prove extraordinarily difficult to use standard means of negotiation to gain the social support that you absolutely need if you're going to change your social niche. So we have to smash our social house in order to build a new one, and there's going to be an interim period where we have no home. I can see why that would make us depressed, but that doesn't make depression an adaptive strategy. It makes it a consequence of another strategy which is adaptive, the willingness to smash my home in order to try to build a better one. Okay, so we're getting, we're getting uh, close to, I'm glad you said that, we're getting close to um, an attempt to briefly explain how depression could work to, to solve this niche change problem when... And again, if I can just, if I can just recapitulate, the problem is that you're engaged in this matrix, all these different social relationships that you have, some of them might be beneficial, but you may find yourself in a situation in which the <clears throat> aggregate group of <clears throat> relationships that you have don't actually help your fitness, or there may be some alternative that would be better or different. Yeah. As you grow as a, as a human, as you gain skills and knowledge, and it could, this could happen on a very unconscious level, you realize that, oh my God, I've got this incredible capacity opportunity mismatch. I could be this, I could be an emergency room doctor, mm -hmm. but I'm stuck in this postdoc where I'm a slave, you know? You've got this incredible capacity opportunity mismatch with huge fitness, negative fitness consequences. Um, you need to change your social niche so that your capacities for fitness enhancing activity are allowed to be used. So the niche change hypothesis proposes that cognitive mechanisms evolved that activate depressive states states that are, as we know, capable of gradually, and I would say, socially responsive escalation, the symptoms of depression escalate. It's not all of a sudden, you know, you're... It's not a binary. It's, a, it's, on, a, it's on a continuum. Yes. And these uh, depressive states are designed to deal with this specific high-stakes social navigation problem of tough, socially imposed blocks to niche change. How does it work? There's three complementary things going on, in my opinion, and th this is what the hypothesis is all about. Uh, first, you got the depressive rumination, which we 
propose. And by, and by the way, my mission here is to motivate people to test this hypothesis. Okay, I want people to test this hypothesis. So these three uh, adaptive hypotheses we're going to discuss are not a menu to choose among, but rather they occur together. They occur to they occur together. Okay, especially as depression escalates and they build on one another, okay? So depressive rumination, we hypothesize, forces sober focus on the structure of relationships that block potentially adaptive niche change. And during depressive rumination, and a lot of it could be unconscious, you could just feel like shit, but your mind is working overtime, focusing, focusing on what's blocking your niche change and the social relationships that are involved. Um, so during this depressive rumination, the information gathering that's being done, whether you're conscious of it or not, and um, uh, the largely unconscious analytical mode that you're in during depressive rumination uh, may result, may produce successful negotiation strategies that you couldn't come up with in your normal state of mind. Um, and then you can implement those, and maybe then the depression goes away early on. Didn't even become clinical. You just felt like shit for, uh, I don't know if I can say bad words on this podcast, but uh, I grew up in a bad neighborhood in Chicago. Um, <clears throat> so a little bit of rumination. Rumination. A bunch of tough evolutionary and, psychologists used to get into gang fights outside on the baseball field. <laughs> um, and, oh, yeah, uh, take that, you Darwinist. <laughs> and, and, and in this ruminative state, which so many people find uh, negative and painful, and, you know, people think, oh, you, you can't think. You can't, people can't really think when they're in depressive rumination. Well, uh, what are your thinking tests that you're applying? Do they have anything to do with this context of figuring out how to change your social niche? See, the whole idea here is depressive rumination is forcing you not to think about some abstract cognitive tests. So I think we should pause on that for a okay. moment. Because, yeah, it's like because slowing. educators will say the vast majority of, and by the way, think about the low reproducibility in social sciences, uh, but... The vast majority of uh, educational research strongly suggests it's difficult to learn well when we're depressed and stressed. However, rumination isn't really necessarily about learning. It's about, um, I guess, going into a deeper understanding of a situation or mulling over possibilities or something. It may be that the work that's done by rumination is different enough from the work of learning that these two statements can be true at the same time. But an educator like me is going to flinch at the idea that your brain works better when it's depressed, because in our world it manifestly does not. So what we're claiming is that the... Uh, rumin well, we're all educators, by the way. Sorry, I shouldn't have... So all of us should be on the same page about that, I would think. Yeah. No, I wouldn't expect a student in my class to uh, get an A-plus if they're depressed and they're ruminating about how to change their niche mm -hmm. because their brain is focusing... On, their brain is forcing them to focus on a fitness-limiting problem, which the topic of my course is certainly not addressing that fitness-limiting problem. So people look like they can't think because their brain is forcing them to think about something very specific. That is, now, one uh, of the ways that I would test this, Paul, is that if we can teach people to think creatively in a problem-solving way, people who are expert problem-solvers, for example, ER docs, who have to solve lots of problems in real time constantly, and the problems are complex and constantly changing, ought to be expert problem-solvers and ought not to need this adaptation 
to deal with difficult problems like niche change. It ought to be the kind of thing we're optimized for. What I'm getting at is we should see that people who are trained in or demonstrate expertise in problem solving would be less prone to depression because they have an easier way to get at the same need. But I'm not sure that there's any evidence for that. Okay, well, it would be a prediction of the hypothesis, a testable prediction of the hypothesis mm -hmm. that um, if a person has a good social navigation ability, if their problem-solving ability relates to their ability to read people, persuade people, etc., then those kinds of people should have a much lower rate of depression. Um, I go on a limb, go out on a limb and say, if, if that is not true, then that is really damaging to this hypothesis. But you have to, you have to test the person's problem-solving ability vis-a-vis -vis the problem that their brain is in this uh, obsessive mode to solve. Um, and so in order to properly evaluate the, this, this challenging uh, prediction that you just came up with, you, you've got to have the hypothesis clearly in mind. Um, okay, what does this problem-solving ability, what kind of problem-solving ability? Uh, there's different kinds. Is it, is it solid social problem-solving ability? In some cases, because people want stability in their social matrix, it, it can be very difficult, even for a good problem solver, occasionally, to be able to negotiate their way um, into a new niche to get the social concessions and all that that are necessary to from everybody, everybody in your social network all at once. So We're backing into a predictive endorsement of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Joe? I forgot. <laughs> Oh, I, I was ruminating. I was ruminating about something. I apologize. But, but what were the other two pieces? Okay. Besides rumination. Okay. So, um, uh, one more thing about rumination is at this stage, a lot of depression will spontaneously go away because during this rumination, you may realize that you know what. I uh, I know how to make a better arrowhead, but I cannot get along with these guys in my clan or tribe who are making the arrowheads. So it's just not a viable strategy for me. So during the rumination, I'm doing intense cost-benefit analyses about whether it's really worth changing niche, whether it's really possible. I thought it was. I could come to the conclusion that it's not. I better stay being in my lower rank career for now at least, and then depression should go away. Um, that's going to happen during a lot of uh, ruminative um, episodes. So number two, okay, it's an old idea that depression is a cry for help. But if you're an evolutionary biologist and you're familiar with evolutionary communication theory, you know that any effective cry for help, which in essence is asking another individual to invest in you, and they're always hoping for a profit, at least in the long run, because we don't invest in things that don't eventually increase our fitness. Natural selection is against building brains that do that kind of thing, that go do things that don't eventually lead to a, uh, a return. So our hypothesis is compatible you were with... About, you're about to say that it's a cry for help, but and that there's got to be some 
payoff. Which means it has to be expected risk. There has to be an honest yeah. signal. That's of where need. I thought you were going. An honest signal of need. Okay. And honest signals of need are not necessarily, but well, there's they have to be. Often, honest signals of need, the, the honesty is based on the cost of producing the signal. If your need wasn't real, and, but you're signaling in a costly way that you do have that need, that would be, on average, uneconomical. And natural selection doesn't favor uneconomical communicative behaviors. And the signal receiver would also be, be highly attuned to the possibility that the, the, that the signal giver might be, might, might be a false signal. Right. Right. Boy, this so, is a delicate. So both yeah. signal, 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 signaler and receiver um, are in a bit of a dance here. That's right. Uh, but the outcome uh, very... is that for evolutionary stable signals of, of, of any sort, um, that there has, something has to enforce that honesty. So this is a delicate line because as the receiver, I have to decide that your signal is real enough to be valid. Your need is great enough that if I help you, it'll trigger reciprocity. Yeah. But you're not in such dire straits that you're unlikely to be able to reciprocate later. And this might lead to escalating behavior. It could, it could get a little bit out of control. Yeah, but that makes you look more and more desperate, which makes yeah. you look less and less likely to be able to reciprocate. No, I, I don't know. I... I'm, At past a certain point, I'm thinking about a, about suicidal behavior. In other words, I'm envisioning a peak, right, right. Uh, an optimal level of demonstrated need, past which you begin to look less. Uh, it's going to be very case specific. It's going to be very case specific. It depends upon how reticent people are in your social network about the the validity of this change, how much it serves their interests, and different people are going to have different cost thresholds uh, that they're looking for in your signal of need in order to feel like, okay, this is real, this is an honest signal. That could persuade a lot of people who were initially were trying to block your niche change to, to get on board and, and try to help you. So, well, and, and another way to think of it then reciprocity is, this is a done deal. This guy is not going to be any good to us as a latrine digger. We really have to decide to either let him make arrowheads or leave the tribe, but he's just going to be no good to us as a ditch digger. Mm -hmm. In other words, it may not be that I think you're going to reciprocate. It may just be that forcing you to continue on this current line is going to cost me more than it's worth. Right, yeah, and that, that is you're anticipating you know, uh, uh, a very important part of the hypothesis when you say that. Well, let's hear it. Okay, so, so clearly to, to finish up the honest signaling part, Escalated depressive states clearly entail diverse costs, and they can be escalating costs. They often are. Can't even, you can't take care of yourself. In our evolutionary environment, if you passed up multiple chances to take care of yourself, that is really costly. It is essential, essentially parasuicidal behavior, not taking care of yourself, not taking care of your contracts. And so because depressive states entail diverse costs, uh, they provide honest signals of need that may cause some individuals in the depressives in the depressives social network to support, to decide to support rather than hinder niche change. Now the third part. So you get you get other people on board if it's an honest signal. Yeah, possibly enough people, enough of the key people, help facilitate your niche change. It's possible, and probably not infrequent that there's people in your social matrix who don't give a damn 
that you've produced a good, honest signal. It's in their interest to keep you in your place. Uh, they don't want competition from you. They don't want to be in status competition with you. They don't want to be in... They don't want to set a precedent that'll cost them more in the long run than you're costing them in the short run. That could be too. If unconscious mental mechanisms still believe that after a lot of rumination and honest signaling, and there's, there's still some holdouts in your social network who are blocking you from changing your niche for whatever reason. There could be millions of reasons. They have to be extorted. And so uh, my, my partners don't like to talk about fitness extortion, but I think that's exactly what's going on in a lot of severe depression. Hmm. So, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard that before. Okay, so uh, via fitness... Well, you hear teenagers say, I'll kill myself and then you'll be sorry you didn't let me go to the prom or something uh, okay, like that, that. That's a good example. Yeah, yeah it yeah. is a good example. It is a good example. Um, or, you know, you're sending me to expensive school and I'm getting all D pluses. You know, that in a way is a threat. Um, parents are obviously, uh, they don't think about it this way, but they're worried about how many grandchildren they're going to have. And uh, they want their kids to succeed in life. So when you're not taking care of yourself, uh, there's this fitness extortion. Um, severe depression eventually may persuade holdouts in the depressive social matrix. That is, social partners who initially do not find it in their interest to respond to an honest signal of need may persuade them to support niche change. And these extortionary forces arise because these holdouts as Coffee implied earlier, risk permanently losing their social partner due to the parasuicidal nature of severe depression. They risk permanently losing a social partner. And in the context in which we evolved, and often in modern contexts, there are some social partners who are not so expendable. Okay, So this can be a concern. Um, it could be that there's some non-adaptive depression in modern cultures because social partners are so easily replaced. Mm -hmm. But in the past, it wasn't so much that way. So that's one um, extortionary mechanism. The, the holdout, the person who won't, who refuses, even though you're producing honest signals to help you um, with your, the, the niche change, uh, risks permanently losing you. They also risk, they also risk serious reputational damage these holdouts. This is part of the extortion. They risk serious reputational damage in the eyes of people in the social network that do wish to help you. Or even who just judge you as an unfit parent because your child killed herself or something like that. Yeah. Or why your, don't you, your why spouse. You, you know, uh, she started out as an astrophysicist and she wants to be a social worker now. Why are you forcing just, you know, okay, you paid for three years of astrophysics uh, training. But she's obviously uh, very unhappy with that now, and she's got a whole new vision for her life. And why the hell are you being such a holdout? You know, let her be, let her develop in the way that she naturally is going, you know? Yeah. So um, is this why depression is so common among uh, people in, say, PhD programs? Man, in today's society, there are so many choices. Right. I think it's so confusing for young people mm -hmm. and not so young people. How do I navigate this this job market, this career market? And then, you know, your high school teachers, they can't help you. All the people around you who used to be able to help you. You know, my mother had a fourth grade education. She she was she she gave me a work ethic. But is she gonna help me 
um, get into Cornell or you know, navigate Emlyn and Sherman. And mm-hmm. no, no, she has no experience in that area. In fact, she she was amazed that I don't wasn't making a lot of money publishing papers. You should be getting thousands of dollars for each of these papers. All that work and hours you put into it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so that's another extortionary mechanism here. Um, the holdout risks reputational damage, which obviously could ha- have heavy fitness costs for them. And then, as uh, you guys have already alluded, the third part is that uh, due to the chronic anhedonia and psychomotor perturbation that severe depression entails, the depressive is unable to deliver on the terms of their status quo contracts anyway. And it looks like it's involuntary. So Ed Hagen uh, turned me on to this idea. It's very important. So the contracts get broken whether you like it or not. The contracts are broken. It looks like it's because you're sick. And Mm -hmm. that uh, reduces people's urge to retaliate. It may not be attractive, but at least they're not beating the crap out of you because you just can't get out of bed. You don't even enjoy taking a crap anymore. I mean, that's how bad the anhedonia gets, right? The basic fitness-enhancing things you got to do day to day, there is no pleasure. Right. Um, yeah, you're not getting what you want this person to keep supplying you in their, from their status quo social niche anyway, and that's going on and on. It's getting worse and worse. And so it's interesting. So, so if you're in, if you're in a situation in which you are being exploited and your social niche is not favorable to you for any of a variety of, of reasons, then you're proposing that that might engage this cognitive behavioral program that involves looks like depression and the affective, the affect changes that go along with that, that involves a certain degree of extortion in, in, in itself. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge, huge problem with this hypothesis, though. Although one way to get around it is to say this is not the answer; it's one of the answers. Right. This is this so, is this but, is a, this but is there's an still idea. a huge problem here, yeah. and that is many of the people who are depressed are not looking to change their situation. In fact, situational depression is one thing, but that's often um, situational events that have. Uh, you could say that major life stressors, in a sense, are automatically changing the contract, but often not because I want to change the contract. If something happened to my family, I would definitely suffer situational depression, but it wouldn't be because I'm trying to navigate a new social niche, uh, or I want a new social niche. I will have to adapt to a new social niche. My social network has changed drastically, but I'm depressed as a consequence of that, not as a means to achieve that. The means to achieve that is it got yanked out from under me. And the other thing is that situational depression is really not what we're talking about here today as much, I don't think, as the notion of chronic depression or pessimistic and depressive personalities. And these people, the hallmark of them is that they don't need a trigger to become depressed and they don't improve when circumstances improve. If they did, we'd know what to do for them. Okay, well, your last point first. I think we don't know yet whether people are unable to improve with the therapies that we offer them because the therapies we offer them are not informed by this hypothesis. That's not my point. My point is, let's say I'm depressed because I lost my job. Mm -hmm. Then I should feel better when I get a new job. And in situational depression, I would. But if I have a depressive personality, neither losing my job nor getting a new job are likely to change my mood very much. They're not predictors of whether this will be a depressive month for me. But that, that's, that's, a, that's I mean. a hypothesis. No, right? no, we know that. That's a what pre- characterizes a chronic major depression. 
is that it, it just happens on its own. It's a, it's a personality. It's not an adaptation to a situation. I think that's the whole point. I of think major depression. I think one of the major, oh, sorry. one of the important ways to test the social navigation or niche change hypothesis of depression is to see whether the right problem is being solved. Okay, we're really good at helping people solve problems that don't mess up our world. Um, we're really good at persuading people that, okay, this part of your life really improved a lot. You should stop feeling depressed. But that may not be the problem that is causing the depression. There's but, but your hypothesis does predict that there should be a major rearrangement of social contracts and maybe even actors within a social yes. matrix. That's yeah. one, that is one the onset of one depression. Prediction. In fact, following the onset of depression... Rather than proceeding, even following the recovery from depression, we should expect that things have changed right. dramatically. And then, as things restabilize, the depression should lift. Not always, because as I said, in the rumination phase, you may realize that okay, I really don't need this change. I really can't handle this change. I'm not up to it. Escalating the depression is not worth the risk. People are going to come to that conclusion all the time, and a lot of the times when they come to that conclusion, they're going to be under some kind of form of treatment that doesn't really work. And they're going to get better under that treatment. And, you know, the doctor is going to take credit for it. And the pharmaceutical company is going to take credit for it. But it's the duty, according to this hypothesis, for the therapist to really dig and find out. And it may not be conscious. The person may not think that they want a situational change. But unconsciously, they know that they have a massive capacity opportunity mismatch. But society is so complicated they can't even begin to figure out even what that mismatch entails and certainly not how to manage your way out of that capacity opportunity mismatch. So, so before, it's the, before it's, we get into like the therapy part of it, I think okay. is that that's where I kind of want to go with this, is like what are some of the implications, and then we can talk about some alternatives. Um, I, do, I do want to make the point, this is the disclaimer, we're one hour into this now, but I want to make the disclaimer that actually none of us are actual clinical psychologists or psychiatrists mental health professionals, not, not one of the three of us at this table. And so we're talking, about some, we're talking about some theoretical ideas and some hypotheses that need validation before they would translate to, to actual therapies. But I, wanna, I do want to explore those, those potential uh, ideas. I also want to say that if someone who's listening is indeed depressed or has a relative who is depressed, mm -hmm. who's contemplating self-harm, I, I want to just as a little PSA to throw out that there is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I'm going to give it right now. It's 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Because suicide is a very real phenomenon. My, one of my last patients at the, in the ER that I just left was a intentional or in inadvertent overdose. These are, these, are, these are things that really do hurt a lot of people. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to make that very clear to yes. the people listening, that um, we're, we're, we're talking about some, some upper-level stuff here before we kind of plunge into how this might affect uh, therapies. We're talking about this in a very detached way, but that whatever else we know about depression, the pain of it is literally the worst pain a human can have. Yeah. And so we don't mean to minimize that. It's just not the theme. Therapy, well, us as expert therapists is not the theme of of this discussion, but I'm really enjoying this conversation and my book. We're going to keep going. We continue yeah. and you can, can break it into some bites if you want to later or well, something. Well, we may have to break it into, into yeah. more than one part, but we'll, we'll see. I'd also like to add, and, and this I hope will go into the podcast, that 
So far, all of our conversation has been predicated on the idea that we have to explain why depression makes sense as an evolutionary adaptation. And I'm buying into that for purposes of this conversation, but that is not what I think. I think it's a bug, not a feature. In fact, I've thought many times in my head, my name for this podcast is actually Features or Bugs with question marks. Or so bug, you bug should realize no. I often come at these discussions from the standpoint that while all three of us agree that evolution is real and works and is the primary driver for why we are like we are, two of us believe it generally works, and I believe it's a very buggy system. And that often leads to us interpreting the same information differently. It doesn't make me right. In fact, I'm the least expert in this discussion. But, but I, it does allow me to ask lots of questions. Yeah. I do like the fact that Paul made the very salient point that on an individual basis, these supposed adaptations can fail dramatically. <laughs> um, so for any, any individual, it can have a massive the trait might have a massive fitness cost. Well, flight's great for yeah. birds, but the first yeah. time you get pushed out of the nest, you don't always pass the test. Or 